Attention all mortals, veterans and civilians alike. It's time to buckle up and get ready for a wild ride because you just tuned in to the Swandingo Files. Your host, Steven Swanson, is here to help you navigate the crazy world of transitioning from military life to civilian life. And let me tell you, it's a bumpy road, but with a little bit of humor and a lot of determination, we can make it through together. Welcome back to another episode of the Swandingo Files, where the dango ate your baby. Here today I have a special guest, Tammy Moses. She's also a fellow veteran from the Navy, and now she deals with hoarders and stuff like that. So welcome on the show, Tammy. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. I'm happy to be here. I'm glad you came on. I know we rescheduled last time, and unfortunately I got stuck in the DFW traffic, and I was like 10 minutes late. like, you know what, just push it off. It's probably busy. So so I'm glad you, I'm glad you rescheduled and came back. So. Well, life happens, you know. I've someone else I'm trying to record with, and we've um, rescheduled a couple times. You know, you can't. That's I guess the beauty of the virtual piece as well is it's not like it's the end of the world. You know, you can pivot pretty easily. So I appreciate yeah. you having me on, and I appreciate you coming back. And uh, so today we're just going to talk about why you joined the military. What anything that's special that stood out your transition out and the difficulties that you might have had or achievements that you had, so that way other veterans know coming out. And then what you're into now today, so and how your how your business is running. So if you want to start off, uh, why did you join the military? Well, I was looking for an escape route, and uh, my dad had been in the Navy, and so I was kind of familiar with that particular branch. Um, the town where I grew grew up, Port Angeles, Washington, had Coast Guard base, so I kind of saw that side of things, and I had other relatives that had been in the Army, and so, I, I mean, it seemed like it was kind of a an option for me that I hadn't really considered until I got really fed up with the living environment I grew up in, and <clears throat> hoarding was a piece of that, but I I didn't realize that at the time how how traumatizing that experience was as a kid and I honestly was just looking for a way out and so I was thinking about this this morning and I was like well why did I join why did I go in the navy and primarily it was to get away but also well like your senior year of high school mm-hmm. well if you have that experience you write like you know, your 10-year plan or whatever it was. And my one of my things was to travel and to go to college and to have my own house that I could do whatever I wanted in, decorating, cleaning, whatever. So when I talked to the recruiter, kind of those things were fulfilled if I went in the Navy. You know, three hots and a cot, which is also prison, but this was <laughs> the Navy. And I was like, well... You know, it fulfills some of my top things. And so I enlisted in my senior year in the delayed entry program. And I had some relatives who were like, what are you doing? Like, why don't you just stay here and go to college? And I'm like, I just spent years in school. I'm sick of school. (laughs) I want to do something else. And um, so anyway, I graduated in June. I left 
for boot camp in August and basically kind of never looked back, you know. Um, I came home on leave, which was kind of strange because you, what I figured out is I had changed, but they hadn't. My family, the people I knew, like I was different because I put myself into a different experience. And um, what I will say is I have this attitude of I will not fail, which is actually kind of negative when you think about it, because your brain remembers that last thing, fail. And it took me a long time to kind of turn that into, oh, I will succeed. I can do this. I can make it. But it was also like I felt like I didn't have other options. Um, so it was like I was up against this wall where I have to fit. I have to succeed at this because I don't know what else I'm going to do if I don't. And I had applied to college. I thought I wanted to be a corpsman, um, but they didn't have any openings when I enlisted. And I just said, OK, well, I'm going anyhow. I don't necessarily recommend <laughs> Just going in and saying, hey, put me somewhere. I'll be a deck seaman, which basically means you paint ships and do. Oh, I was wondering what that job was. I mean, I can't remember you, the name of it. <laughs> it just, you just kind of do whatever they need, whether that's cleaning or I was lucky because I knew how to type. And so one of the first places I was at, they needed someone to come in and type some stuff. And so I came in and did some typing and when I think about it, we also organized this enormous warehouse space, and we got it all done, and someone in charge of us said, well, go do it again. And I'm like, dude, we just spent like two days cleaning this up. Well, yeah, but if you do it again, it'll build character. <clears throat> I can assure you, we did not do it again. We went in and fiddled around but we did not like <laughs> reorganize it again um that was just kind of one of my first things like oh hey maybe that's a little sassy um but i just thought it was dumb to redo something when i told them and, I, agree. I agree with yeah. you i totally do <laughs> but i i went through um so i went to boot camp in orlando florida then I went to some additional shipboard training in Orlando, and then I went to San Diego where we did pipe patching and firefighting and all that stuff to prepare for being on a ship. And, you know, you kind of think you're going through this training and maybe you're never going to use it. And I went to a supply ship. It was kind of – it was pretty new for women to be on board ships, period, uh, but a supply ship was considered basically non-combatant. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was kind of where I landed. But the interesting thing was, is I had prayed, please send me somewhere far away from where I grew up. And I was stationed uh, on that ship and, and was home ported in Guam. And I got to travel a lot by being on that ship, which... Again, was one of those, you know, 18-year-old little things. I want to travel. Um, during that time, I – Yeah. Go tra- ahead. The greatest military saying ever, join the military, travel the world, kill people. <laughs> like, that, that, can I just see the world and not do the third part? And, right. And not – and, you know, 
I think a lot of times we get caught up in that comparison where, mm-hmm. hey, I saw bat combat, you didn't, you know, and and I would personally say that I have a lot of respect for the people who really saw things I didn't see as far as in the desert and killing people and really having to face your own mortality in a way that I didn't I didn't have to do that in that way. Um but I don't feel that makes a person's service less because you yeah. did put yourself out there and you don't you just don't know where that path could have gone, right? I like what you just said there because and I, I was combat arms. I had front lines, stuff like that, getting shot at, blown up, whatever. And I had fun doing it. But I always appreciated coming back, talking with the mechanics, supply, S1, S4. I don't know if you guys called it that back in the day. Um, good hot chow. Like, I appreciated that more than going out there and get blown up. So everything that was being done in the rear, I was happy to come back to. And I never thought of any of them, any single person I ever served, any less than me. So I just treated everybody with respect. You know, privates, sergeant, you know, senior, and then officers, of course, you know, got their own little respect because they're ranked. But I never treat anybody less because of their job. It's like, that's dumb. Everybody raised their right hand. They all joined. Some people wanted to get an actual skill out of the military versus me. I mean, yeah, I got a skill of shooting guns and <laughs> driving a couple different vehicles, but that doesn't translate to the outside. So I'll never put anybody down for serving no matter what their job was. You could have been a, pl- a plumber in the Army. Okay, so at least you got something out of it. Congratulations. So that's just my stance on it. Well, that's kind of, you know, we all, I think it it does point to we all have a role that we play in different people's lives and in different scenarios, and that doesn't make us less than, you know, and, and – I have appreciated, I eventually became a personnelman, um, which means I didn't have to paint ships anymore. And um, I had an opportunity. Someone said, hey, do you want to try to call them being a striker? Do you want to be, do you want to do this? And I was like, well, yeah, kind of. I want to do something to get out of this hot ass sun. (laughs) um, So I had that opportunity and. The thing I will say is that I had um, a first class, well, I guess he was a chief by that point, and a second class who were in my um, unit, and basically they said, you're going to pass this class, you're going to pass and become a third class, an E4. And when you do that, you have more options for duty stations, and you won't have to be um, start again to prove that you're worth it in a new ship basically and but they were very protective of me and I would say not every person is fortunate enough to have a chain of command that is that watchful but I do feel that they had my best interests at heart and they wouldn't even let me talk to a detailer until I had passed that test and I did and you know, it was the 90s. Everybody went line dancing. Well, not everybody, but I did. Line dancing, country dancing, that type of thing. 
And I would have people say, hey, aren't you coming tonight? And I'm like, no, I need to study because I'm going to pass this damn test. <laughs> and I did. And, you know, you mentioned something about accomplishments. And it just – I ended up being a junior sailor of the quarter on the ship I was on. And then later on the shore duty command I was at, I was like, I don't really know how that happened because I wasn't really focused on – an award, you know, I was just like, oh, let's do this work or let's do this. And, um, uh, but I do reflect on that and I think, okay, I must have been doing something right. <laughs> Even at that young age for someone to say, hey, you're, you're doing something well enough. You're showing up well enough for us to say, hey, other people should, should at least notice that you are doing something right, I guess. And I had a chief. Um, who had was becoming an LDF, a limited duty officer. And one of the best compliments I ever got from someone was, he said, you remind me of myself when I was a third class. And I was just like, oh, wow, really? Like you're in charge of this place and people and making sure all the things work right. And and you see something in me that's similar to you? Like, oh, wow, that, that just, I mean, obviously I'm <clears throat> old. And that still sticks with me, you know, after all this time. So I think there's value in seeing positive things in your people, you know, and I think that's one of the things that uh, I brought with me out of the military is to look for that positive thing. And people think because you have a certain rank, you should be respected. Um, and so it's very possible to respect a rank. And really not like the person. And so. <laughs> that is so true. So true. And that military bearing, you know, you bring that into situations where later someone will say, oh, I thought you liked me. I'm like, well, <laughs> let's just say I learned how to work with people, even if uh, that wasn't. You know, even if I would not personally have gone out and had, you know, a drink with you, you learn how to uh, navigate that, I think. And what I have found in the civilian world is a lot of times the supervisors don't necessarily like me, but their bosses do. My coworkers do. And I think it has to do with that leadership part where you're not even necessarily trying to lead you just kind of fall into it because of who you are or the training you've had I'm kind of going off on a thing there but I just think when you transition out of the military you're bringing skills but you're also bringing baggage and so you're trying to navigate what does that look like? What skills did you learn? How do you write a resume? Like, there's all these things <laughs> um, that you end up having to kind of figure out. And so I, I got out of the military in 1996. I'd like to think things have improved since then. In some cases, so at one point I was married. I later got a necessary divorce. That's what I call it. Um, and it was, I, I needed to, it was to a military member as well. And so when he separated from the military, I did see where they had a better handle on medical things 
things like that and trying to get you connected to the VA. But that wasn't really the case when I got out. It was like you waited a year to make, to find out if they were going to give you any kind of disability rating at all. So um, at that time, they they very much wanted me to go into the reserves. And I was like, well, I don't really want to go in the reserves. So I didn't. But I think people – I was running away, running away from home, if you will, when I went in the military, and I was probably running away from the military when I got out. <laughs> so, um, I don't know if there's something specific you want me to address about that as far as separating from the military, because it, it was, you know, I, I had accomplished what I set out to do, which was travel, get money for school. And, oh, by the way, I'll be able to get a house at some point with, you know, the the eligibility certificate. So. No. Oh, there you are. Okay. No, sorry. Uh, no, for the transition, just like. All right. So when did. uh? So did you go straight into college or did you take some time off? Did I mean, and that transition time, what what all happened? Like, how and how did it lead into you getting to what you're doing today? So, I did a lot of different jobs. I I had customer service skills as a personnel man. You made travel arrangements. You uh, made sure people got their pay. You know, you made sure people got ID cards, and so I had a lot of that kind of skill and. So I did customer service. I worked in a call center, which I hated. Uh, don't really recommend call centers personally. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it paid the bills at the time. And eventually I did chiropractic claims. And I learned, I think the military taught me that sometimes you have to advocate for yourself. And the reason I went from the receptionist is into the claims as I went back and said, Hey, someone's leaving. <laughs> I know you want to hire for that role. Would you have any interest in me taking that role? And I did. And so I did that for about a year. And then I worked, I, I found good jobs actually through temp agencies, which <laughs> I think it's important for people to know that that's an option. Um, when you get out of the military is that a temp agency can be a good transition option. Um, I, what else did I do? I, I ran, there was a little boy scout shop uh, on the Island of Guam. And so I ran their little shop there um, for a, about nine months or so. And that was really fun to uh, encourage the families and support the, the boys that were, you know, getting their badges and whatever. It's really cool to see the, the achievements when they're that young. And they're Guam? And Guam, Guam. You know that? I didn't know they had a Boy Scouts in Guam, honestly. That's you're the first person I ever heard that. It, it was, it was a fun job, you know, and I had latitude in that. It was like, Oh, you want to have a sale? Okay. Make a sign. You want to do this? Okay. You know, and so I had, it was an enjoyable way for me to earn money, but I also enjoyed it because I had a little bit of latitude, a little bit of say in what was happening. And a lot of jobs, you don't always get that. So um, eventually I did go back to college. I was 
late 30s when I did that. And I finally did get a, a bachelor's in psychology. And I had worked for state agency for about 12 and a half years. And so that was the military. Um, you got extra points for having served when you took an exam to get hired. And so that is what helped me get hired with that agency. And interestingly enough, that medical claims that I had done years prior played a role eventually when I did um, outreach in the community. Um, and I, and I think for me, the the heart of that whole role was being able to take difficult, bureaucratic, ridiculous letters and explanations and break them down so the rest of us could understand <laughs> what was happening. And it, I think that's a skill that you you do learn in the military because you have people with varying education. You have people with varying um ways that they learn, and so I think it's important to recognize that as you transition. How can you take some of those skills, really, and and make yourself valuable in your new workplace? And eventually, I, I went into therapy, which um, helped me go through a necessary divorce, and at that time, we started having conversations about you really probably should think about doing something else because this place where you work is going to just drain you emotionally. And so then I started writing a blog and it kind of became, oh, I'm going to help people organize their homes. I'm going to help people overcome these hoarding issues. And I did that for about three years. I worked some other jobs along the way because starting a business is no joke. Um, I didn't have the best plan, and I kind of picked up speed once I found some fellow veterans who were on the business journey and started to become involved with something called VYs, which is Veteran Women Igniting the Spirit of Entrepreneurship, and that's through Syracuse University, and they have a lot of different programs to this day for people who are um, entering entrepreneurship, but finding a good mentor and someone who can, um, guide you is very valuable when you're starting on something. And frankly, my podcast started on a napkin in a diner in 2019 at uh, the military influencer conference. I know a couple people you, I think you've already interviewed Richard Kaufman. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, and Annette like Whitmarker. Yeah, I mean, they, they were instrumental along with a few other people there. Um, Kurt, uh, from Ballish Woodworks, Trish Lito, like Greg Clark. These people were at this diner and, uh, Mark Dudek and Daniel Curry is the other one. Basically, this group of people said, Hey, you should start a podcast and here's some names we think you should call it. And I walked away with a napkin, which I still have. And, you know, you read other people's stories and you realize lots of good ideas come out of a napkin or um, a garage or something. And it's like I said, I never thought I'd talk about hoarding issues. But what I see is a lot of people join the military to escape from something, 
whether it's a chaotic home life, homelessness, living in hoarding, no food. I don't know if you've interviewed Robert Garcia yet, but not yet. Not yet. He has some good stories. He actually is the first person that I interviewed on my podcast. So um, when you start to find people who are willing to help you launch, even if you are a fledgling little idea, that's what propels you. That's what helps you uh, move through the next step. And I think we try to do too much lone wolf. I did. I know. And but once you kind of drop that facade a little, it's amazing um, the resources that can come your way. And I don't mean necessarily money. While that's important, I just mean connections. I had this realization yesterday that I had been building a network and I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Look, I didn't realize that's what I was doing. As ridiculous as that sounds, but as you as people reach out to me and say, hey, I need a resource for this in this state, I'll be like, okay, I go through that mental Rolodex. What, what, who do I know? Is there someone I know? Who can I ask? And there is something very positive about talking about weird things, <laughs> which hoarding is kind of a, a niche thing. People are like, why are you talking about that? But what I see is a lot of trauma, lots of mental health stuff, lots of people who have underlying issues they haven't dealt with yet. And that's also true if you're a survivor of chaos, if you're a survivor of war, like there is trauma in there that unless you get a handle on it for you, it's going to destroy your life. And it could also destroy your relationships and your home and just all these things unless you really focus on what, where are you trying to go? And is this behavior or situation you're in, how's it impacting you and how's it impacting your loved ones? And if you don't like it, then it's time to take stock of where you're at and how can you do it differently? And me personally, I write, I journal a lot and some of it's for public consumption. Some of it is just for me getting it out of my head, but it's very, for me, it's very therapeutic. And, and if someone's someone struggling struggle. with it, I have journal prompts and things like that that I'm happy to share because we, we all don't necessarily start out believing we're worthy. And at some point we have to change that narrative and decide we are worthy of good things and good people and positive relationships and collaborations that propel us forward, whether we're in business or in a job or raising kids, whatever we're doing. Um, it's really important to figure out kind of who's on your team, who's on your side and whose team are you on? Who, who can you support? Because there's days when you feel, well, I can speak for myself when I feel just like, nope, not happening. Pour some more coffee. But then you figure out who could I reach out to? Who could I say something encouraging to? And that helps me. That helps me also feel um, more connected, I guess I would say. Yeah, that's kind of why I, I've been doing this, the podcasting, connect with other veterans, kind of not just the network, but also to hear their story and realize that, you know, mine's not all. 
I know mine's not the worst, but it, it helps me when I hear their stories and how they struggled and how they overcame it. So that was really big for me starting this. And it's just nice, like you said, the network, get to know different people. And, you know, I got a bunch coming up. I'm slammed this week. And most people would be like, you know, I did five in one day. Most people would be oh, like, wow. that's just too much. <laughs> and it's like. That's a lot. Well, <laughs> it is. But by the end of it, by the end of those five, I was like, I feel better now than I've felt in a long time. Like, maybe this is it right here, this whole thing right here. Because, like I said, I did do the combat thing. I went out and played Cowboys and our good guys, bad guys over there and, you know, saw some stuff, and which I didn't see. But, you know, listen to other one, listen to other people and not have to go to the VA because I'm tired of the VA system. Uh, it's just they just want to pop you full of pills and keep going. Well, not so much anymore, but that's what they were doing. Just pop a pill, pop a pill of pills, and there you go. You know, best thing to do is just talk with somebody one on one. And I've never seen, I never realized the veterans would be out there reach out like this. People I don't even know, like they scheduling with me like crazy, and it's just, it's awesome. Like I never thought this resource would even be out there. I never thought like there was such a network of veterans still talking with each other like like they are, and it's. It's baffling. It really is. And I'm glad I became a part of it. I really am. And you never know. Well, what I found is when you start to tell your story, a piece of it here or there, I mean, I I was at a business conference. I wasn't at anything related at all to hoarding. But yet you mentioned two or three things about what you do or what you experience. And all of a sudden people are telling you their story right there. They don't even know you, but there's something about the way you present it or the way you're, that you're approachable, that you're vulnerable, and they feel willing to share. And so it's – I agree with you. I never really thought I would stumble into this and talking to people and having people want to share their stories, but there's something that we need to do that. And, you know, it's amazing to me how many people I've met in the military – not necessarily in touch with them today, but how quickly you can develop a bond through a mm-hmm. conversation on watch or riding down the road. Like, and there's people to this day that I remember fondly um, based on conversations or connections, you know? So um, the military has its problems. The VA has its problems. Uh, the VA needs to work on its bedside manner. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I know we're kind of running out of time here, but I recently went to an appointment and they're like, Oh, are you having thoughts of suicide? Are, are you safe at home? And I'm like, what's your, like in my head, I'm thinking, what's your name? Like, I don't even know you enough to answer the question. Like I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I'm not comfortable enough to say that to you. Like, could we maybe I don't know. Could you take my blood pressure first? Like, I don't know. There just seems like there's a disconnect. There, there's a new question out there. What gender do you identify as? Are they asking the VA now? I was like, yeah. We're, we're, no, we're not going to get into that. Mm-hmm. No, we're not going to get into that. Uh, well, for the record, I identify as a threat and screw around and find out. There, that's the polite way. Or my I'm da- a girl. Okay. You know, my, my daughter thinks I'm a unicorn, so I guess I'll. <laughs> but so, so you're I, doing something right. I guess I am. 
So I know you're doing a lot of work around hoarding and stuff. I know there's some uh, trauma from your youth with hoarding, and I've seen how severe hoarding can get and how bad uh, people have gotten. Um, so what what are you, how are you trying to help hoarders in that? Like, what is your program about? What does it do? So I have a a group a community for people who can join if you're dealing with this issue, whether you have a hoarding issue or not, or I focus a lot more on the family members and the loved ones because usually they see the problem, and a lot of the times the person with hoarding does not. There's a lot of denial in the severity of that situation that they're dealing with. And there's a lot of people who say you should just go in and clean it up. And the thing is, is that the person with the hoarding issue has a lot of stuff going on, and if you just go in and clean it up, with or without their consent, because I've been involved with both scenarios, uh, there's still a lot of trauma that they haven't processed. And it has been shown that if you do a clear out, it might have taken 10 years for it to get that bad. A person who has that issue can come back in and make it just as bad as it was in six months um, or less. And, I focus on understanding that the stuff is the tip of the iceberg. The the mental health piece is so frequently missed and not addressed that that's part of why people rehoard. And I I do a lot of work around the awareness piece because people need to know that while clearing it up is quite obviously needs to happen, that's not necessarily your first step unless it's a medical crisis. Which, by the way, is often how people get their hoarding gets discovered is because there's a medical crisis. But on the flip side of that is the first responders who are going into these situations who can't get in the door or maybe they can, but they can't get out, particularly if there's a fire. And so. I have a heart for all the people who come across this and are like, oh, my God, what is this? What do we do? And it's kind of a myth that a government entity will come in and just solve the problem. Uh, um, And that's why family members get pulled into it a lot of the time, even though we're talking about – so there's a continuum, right? You have, like, stuff, and then you have – more stuff, and then you might have squalor and trash and animal waste, rodents, you know, infestations. And so you have this continuum where it's really not safe for you, a, a lay person, a family member, to go into that situation. Not to mention how much anger and, frankly, sometimes your parent will disown you over cleaning it up, even though they agreed to it, which I've had this experience personally, and there's a need to be talking about how traumatizing it is trying to deal with this as an adult. Maybe you have your own kids, you have a spouse, you have your own health issues depending on your age. Like the expectation that the family member should resolve it is just, I think it's extremely unfair to the family as well as to the person with the hoarding issue. And And until we talk about it more, until we start saying, hey, Susie, I noticed this is a problem for you. You know, I'm concerned about your safety. 
You have extension cords running through, mm. you know, every pile of boxes in your home. Your um, electric heater is facing cardboard boxes. Like, you know, until we start really focusing on that and addressing it, um, we're going to keep seeing this issue. And I, I could go a whole another thing about medical things and and the fact that when you tell a medical professional that you're concerned about hoarding, there uh, a lot of times they don't really know what you're talking about, um, or they can't even fathom that someone could live in these conditions. And that's why um, photographs, video footage, um, unfortunately, sometimes you have to do that in order to show other people what you're talking about. And um, it it is hard to navigate it. And so I do offer some consulting. I'm working on a group coaching program where you can basically come in and say, hey, I'm having this problem. Any suggestions? Any recommendations? Um, who should I talk to? And honestly, if you're dealing with it, it's a lot about, Looking at safety and looking at um, what ca- what can you reasonably do energetically, and I wouldn't say that you should use up all your resources to solve this because you often they're going to just repeat it. Um, my dad was pulled from the horde, and um, emergency services saw it, thankfully, and. He never returned to the horde. He had a lot of mobility issues and medical issues. He was hospitalized, went to a nursing facility, and passed away there. And the thing is, is that usually you'd think it's terrible that your parents in a facility, except what were they in before? You know, how they not taking their medication, not listening, not, you know, the mobility issues, anything you touch would fall over. Like you learn that. It's not as bad. Nobody wants to be in a nursing home, okay? I'm just going to say it. But if you look at the alternatives, would you rather at least have a room that you can navigate around in and go down the hallway for meals? Like, when you're making decisions for your loved ones, they aren't necessarily going to agree with you. But that doesn't mean you aren't making the best informed choice you can at that time. Yeah. I've seen some videos like youtube videos so i know there used to be a show about it too hoarding i don't even know if it's still on anymore it needs to be brought back but i don't i used to think the same way like you said earlier about people like why don't they just clean it up or somebody going to clean it up and it's like um my wife actually had talked to me and she told me it's like it's not that easy it's it's mental it's you know it, it took them 10 20 30 years to build up and no matter how bad it smells or Stinks, they will not get rid of a single thing. So it, it's bad, and I know there's a lot of health con- health concerns around it, too, and there's a lot of people out there dealing with it, and we don't even realize it. It, it may look normal on the outside, but on the inside, it probably it may not be. So, And a lot of times you, you can look at the exterior and see, ooh, ooh this is, <laughs> place has got a problem, but sometimes you, you don't. I had a client several years ago where – you know, the yard looked like it needed to be mowed. But then once you got in the house, it was like three feet of stuff everywhere. Like you could barely navigate it. And there was a point in her life where that wasn't the case. You know, there was medical issues, things happened, she couldn't bend over anymore. And so 
when you're dealing with someone that has a longer term illness, it's important to address the the housing situation. And that it's not even a question where you really get asked when you, if you're advocating or navigating, no one really says, hey, is your recovery space going to work for you? You know, are, are there trip hazards? Are there people talk about fall hazards, you know, in a very pick up the carpet kind of way, but they don't talk about the two feet of trash or electric extension cords that are running through the cardboard boxes or the fact that you're crawling over stuff to get to your bed or can't sleep on your bed because there's too much stuff, can't bathe because there's newspapers in your shower or whatever it is. Like for some of these people, it's a very extreme and we aren't addressing it. People say, how can you let your parent live that way? Well, I'm in America and people get to live how they want to a point. Um, and so you do have limited options sometimes, even if you can clearly see, you know, well, I would say as a military member, you can go X, Y, Z, this needs to happen. Boom. And you do it. But someone who um, doesn't understand that or is dealing with mental health challenges, you can't necessarily explain it in a in a reasonable way for them. Like there is a a non-recognition of the actual problem. And that's very frustrating if you are friend, neighbor, loved one, church member, to, you know, real estate agent. Like, how do you convince someone to get rid of their stuff if they're trying to sell their house? Like, you know, and not everyone has, like, I would say it's okay to normalize that most of us have mail or laundry, or the kid made a mess in the corner, or there's toys and whatever. Like, sure. like we're living. I have six kids, so. I yeah. heard, I listened to your episode last week, and I was like, six kids? Holy cow. Kudos to you and your wife for managing all that. <laughs> I don't know if it's managing them or just keeping from total chaos. In this house, because they're only two to eleven, so so very young as well. <laughs> eat a lot, no. So, <laughs> well, so how how can people get a hold of you? Your social media and stuff like that. Website. So my website is thehoardingsolution.com, dot com, and I also have the Hoarding Solution podcast, which is on Spotify and Google Audible. Um, I'm on Facebook, Tammy Moses. All right, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. I don't know. My I am in a weird setup with Wi-Fi, so I hope that wasn't my fault. But anyway, um, it could have been. Um, I'm thehoardingsolution.com, and I have a podcast, The Hoarding Solution, which you can just look up. Uh, and I have a group, The Hoarding Solution Community, on Facebook. Uh, for people who are trying to resolve this issue in a more holistic way and – um, some groups don't like you to share photos, but if that helps you explain what's happening, I welcome people to come in and, and be able to do that in a in a space that's non-judgmental. Um, uh, I'm on Instagram and also, but you can just might might uh, send my mother-in-law to you. So. <laughs> 
She, she and it's small, amazing how many people, problem. like you say, are dealing with it, and you may not know. Um, some people present very well, out, and some people are very brilliant in their work and their jobs, but they have this issue at home. So uh, it, it does cross all all different kinds of lines and cultures that you may not at first think is, is true, but it does. No, that's understandable, and I feel bad for people that go through that, and I know there's more to the situation than what people want to say or give them credit for. So, but, you know, I'm glad to have you on. I'm glad glad you shared your story. I'm not going to hold it against you that you joined the Navy because I'm Army, (laughs) and I know we're better, except for football. So that's the only thing the Navy's better at, okay? So, but... This wraps up this episode with the Swan Dingo Files uh, with Tammy Moses. She might have just found herself a new client, my mother-in-law. And maybe I can get rid of my mother-in-law, too. So, I don't know. But we'll see you all next time. I don't specialize quite in that, but thank Well, folks, that's all we have for today's episode of the Swandingo Files. I hope you've enjoyed this journey with your host, Stephen Swanson, as much as he enjoys recording it. Remember, transitioning from military life to civilian life is tough. But with a little bit of grit, a dash of humor, and a lot of determination, you can overcome any obstacle. So until next time, keep on trucking, and keep Swandingoing.